You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, summer travel helped boost Airbnb to a record quarter, but expectations are even higher for the current quarter. I'll talk to CEO Brian Chesky about investors raising the stakes. Plus, Michael Saylor's next chapter. The MicroStrategy co-founder is stepping down as CEO to focus on, wait for it, more Bitcoin. Saylor joins us later to talk about why he's making moves in a continuing crypto winter. And despite record inflation and pressure on consumers, SoFi had better than expected results, bucking a bad news trend for fintech. CEO Anthony Noto will share his view on the macro environment and spending plans as competitors like Robinhood start a massive round of layoffs. We will get to all of that in a moment, but first, Airbnb, as I said, just notched its best second quarter revenue ever. The home sharing giant says it's only going to get better. The travel rebound has given hosts more pricing power, which with average daily rates now 40% higher than pre-pandemic. Airbnb chair and CEO Brian Chesky joins me now. So, Brian, I have to ask you about the market reaction here because shares opened down. They've paired most of their losses for the day, but they're still down 30% so far this year. What do you think investors are missing? I think there's a lot of uncertainty on travel right now. And, um, you know, but I, I think the best thing we can do is just continue to tell our story. Our revenue was up 58% year over year. We generated $800 million of free cash flow in the quarter nearly, but nearly $3 billion in the last year. And I think one of the things we shared with investors is that our bookings actually accelerated from June to July. So I think one of the things we saw is that there's a lot of demand for Q3, Q4, summer travel. And, you know, we're, we're, we're just we're focused on things we can control. So that's what we're doing. Still, there's some disappointment about your forecast. Still going to grow, but growing the same rate as last quarter. We had Brent Phil, who covers Airbnb from Jeffries on, saying, look, I might be the perfect example of a person. I just took a big trip. Now I'm back home. Maybe I'm going to slow my spending down, slow my travel down just because of what's happening in the macro environment. How concerned are you about that? You know, we're not too concerned right now about the macro environment. One of the things we learned was two years ago, I mean, we experienced something that we think is going to be much worse than this current macroeconomic environment. When the pandemic hit, our business dropped 80% in eight weeks. 
But the thing that was remarkable is what happened next. We recovered really faster than any other travel company. And that's because our model is adaptable. We have nearly every type of space and nearly every type of community. So whatever happens to the economy, people, I think, are still going to want to live on Airbnb. They're still going to want to travel. If they want to save money, Airbnb is a great way to do that. And, you know, we're great for crossing borders. We're great with urban travel. But we also are great for non-urban destinations. So if you want to get in a car and travel nearby, we work for that, for that as well. So I think we're a very adaptable model. And and in a difficult economic time, what I remind people is we're actually born in a recession. During that period of time, during the financial crisis, people turned to Airbnb to become hosts. People wanted to save money and seek the value that they got from Airbnb. So we're actually feeling really positive right now. So uh, Dara Khosrowshahi, I, I spoke to him yesterday, the CEO of Uber. He said he thinks Uber is, quote, recession resistant. Is that how you describe Airbnb? Are you recession proof? I mean, you know, we were born in a recession. We dealt with a pandemic where we lost 80% of our business in eight weeks. We just established that we had a record Q2, and we are feeling really good about Q3. So I think we are as well positioned as anybody for a recession, if that were to happen. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about the companies doing layoffs, big tech companies like Netflix, Shopify, Coinbase. We're just hearing Walmart doing layoffs. I I spoke to Tim Cook uh, just ahead of their earnings call, Apple planning to slow down spending on hiring and growth, also said Apple plans to be deliberate about its spending. Are you changing your spending or investing or hiring strategy at all, given the downturn? What's your approach? Absolutely not. We are not pulling on the brakes. If anything, I'd be interested in stepping on the gas. And here's why. Because we've been through this movie before. Two years ago, we had to right-size our business. We made a lot of difficult choices. We got really focused. That's why we went from a company that had negative free cash flow and now positive $3 billion last year. So we are not changing our hiring plans. We are not changing any uh, any investment thesis. We are staying really focused, and we've sustained our discipline. We were disciplined over the last couple of years when we right-sized our business, and we are staying disciplined. We're staying focused. And actually, what we're focused on right now is next travel season. We are focused on how can we step on the gas to be prepared for the next travel season. All right, so what's going to happen next travel season? It's clear from your results that urban and cross-border travel are back. What are the locations, the destinations that are going to be most popular? Well, I think it's going to be, you know, I thought last year was going to be the travel rebound of the century, and it nearly was, but then, of course, we had uh, the pandemic bounce back with Delta strain. This was an even bigger year. That's why this was a record quarter for us. Remember, this is before Asia's recovered. You know, a large percent of travel is Asia-Pacific. That is not recovered because much of Asia Pacific is cross-border and people aren't freely crossing borders yet. Also, urban and cross-border more generally is just beginning to recover. Now, cross-border is double what it was this time last year. But I think that everything is going to continue to recover. Obviously, notwithstanding whatever happens to the economy, I think it's going to be an even bigger travel season next year. Now, Airbnb closed shop in China at the end of July because it was just so tough to do business there given the uh, zero COVID policy, but you're now focusing on outbound China travel. Do you have any expectation of when restrictions will ease and when that uh, will open up? No, I don't. I mean, we are, we're not going to try to be in the business of predicting when um, countries are going to reopen, but we're going to be in the business of being the most prepared whenever they do. So we'll be ready whenever borders reopen. And to be clear, the China outbound business was always the prize. The biggest prize was the Chinese consumer base wanting to travel around the world and stay in homes. 
that's not really, uh, you know, that's not really a robust business right now because people aren't really crossing the border. But when they are, we're going to be ready. And the way we're preparing is we're making sure we have enough homes in all the corridors. So whether it's Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, or the other places that Chinese travelers go, we're going to be prepared to have enough homes. And we're going to market them that this is a great option for them. How much more pricing power do you think hosts can have? in this market. I mean, this is the worst inflationary environment that, you know, Airbnb has ever seen. Well, I think that um, we are at, we, you know, our business is a somewhat seasonal business. So right now it's peak booking windows. So a lot of people are traveling right now. And so because a lot of people are traveling right now, prices will tend to go up a little bit. Now, bookings right now, in August are typically for September on. September on is really after the peak travel season. And so that will provide some pricing relief, presumably. So I do think there's gonna be quite a bit of flex um, entering the system as we uh, kind of go off of high season. There also seems to be a trend in companies buying up short-term rentals in bulk. And I wonder if that makes you at all concerned about inventory. In what do, you, what do you mean by that? I just make sure I understand the question. Well, you've got these property companies, these property managers that are buying up short-term rentals in bulk, which I wonder if that could be more competition for Airbnb or oh, make inventory see. growth more difficult. You know, I think that, like, for the most part, I think it's just good to remember the scale that Airbnb operates in. We have 4 million hosts. We have 6 million listings around the world, hundreds of millions of guests. So I think the scale of Airbnb is critical. And I think that ultimately what hosts decide is they usually want to go to the platform where they get the most demand. And they always typically want incremental demand. And Airbnb has probably more demand for homes than any other platform in the world. So I think that we are still going to be the, the place for people to go. This is the category that we created. And it's, you know, it's going to be something that I think can stay really strong. Airbnb employees might be uh, driving some of that demand. I know, you know, obviously <laughs> earlier this year and you announced that Airbnb employees could live and work from anywhere. And I'm so curious the learnings from this policy so far. What's been great? What's been more challenging? Anything that you think needs to be tweaked? Yeah, it's been a really great experiment so far. I mean, what we announced is that employees can live and work anywhere. We won't change their pay if they move within the country, and we are going to make it easier for them to travel and work from up to 170 different countries. What we found is that, number one, the reaction was incredibly amazing. We've actually had hundreds of thousands of people visit our jobs page, so clearly people want this. I think it's going to open up access to tons of talent all over the world. We begin, we've begun to gather employees. Our guidance isn't to only be on Zoom. Our guidance is that we'd like people to be together at least a week, a quarter. So what we're trying to do is balance the best of Zoom, the best of real world, and we don't think that's necessarily being in the office three days a week. We think that's less frequent, more meaningful engagements. What I've learned is it takes central planning. You don't want a free-for-all. Whether or not you bring people back to an office, you allow remote work, you want to have it centrally planned. Because if one team does an off-site, that can stop everything if they're collaborating another team. So I think the key is being really organized, really disciplined. But if you do that, you don't need to be in an office to see people working to know they're getting their job done. You just need to be really organized. The more organized you are, the more flexibility you can offer. Last quick question. I know you're back at your home in San Francisco, but you've been living on Airbnb for, for some time now. I know uh, I've seen some pictures of you and your dog. <laughs> Sophie, what, what have been your favorite destinations and, and where are you off to next? Well, like one of my favorite ones is Sophie and I went to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where we stayed in a Frank Lloyd Wright home. And who knew that Frank Lloyd Wright homes are on Airbnb? Well, we have actually an entire collection of them under our design category on Airbnb. 
So that was amazing. Um, I'm actually going to Europe in a little over a week, so I'll be looking forward to staying in some really great Airbnbs as well. And I think I've stayed in like 12 to 13 different Airbnbs by my last count um, since the beginning of the year. So I've gone to like places all over the country, and it's really great. It turns out you can run a really large public company from a laptop in someone else's home. I'm going to have to track down your, your 12 to 13 reviews on Airbnb. Uh, Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb, always good to have you. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ended her visit to Taiwan, pledging the U.S. would not abandon its commitment to the democratically elected government. China reacted, announcing a series of military exercises and trade sanctions on Taiwan. Our Bloomberg News political director, Jody Schneider, joins us now from Washington. So, Jody, what do you make of this trip and the way that it has played out? Well, it's interesting, Emily, because before the trip, we were hearing a lot of threats from China, uh, from uh, President Xi Jinping directly, and from Chinese officials who warned of grave consequences if Nancy Pelosi made that trip to Taiwan. Uh, Xi Jinping, the president himself, said that there would be, uh, that the U.S. and Taiwan would get burned if that happened. But now she went, uh, she got there safely, she spent the night, she met with uh, uh, Taiwan's president and some other government officials and left, uh, said a lot of things about the U.S. commitment to Taiwan. Uh, And uh, now China is sort of backing off that belligerent tone and saying, give us some time, have patience with us while we develop our strategy for uh, determining uh, what we do about Taiwan in terms of that retaliation. So it really has been a marked difference in tone in the past 24 hours uh, since Nancy Pelosi left uh, the island. How are we expecting China to retaliate? We spoke to an analyst yesterday who said, we're not going to see it right away, but you're going to see them hold this against certain companies, and this is going to play out over years, not days. Yeah, I think that's probably right. China is famous for its, you know, having a long view uh, in terms of geopolitical kinds of things uh, and certainly political kinds of events. One thing, I mean, there's two different categories. One is military. And while no one expects uh, that uh, China and Xi Jinping are going to try to do something that that could be, um, you know, that would be very dramatic to try to unify Taiwan with the mainland, we do expect that things like missile tests and military drills will certainly be part of this. And they've already announced that. They've said uh, that missile tests could occur at any time to kind of showcase the strength of China's army and, and China's uh, defense forces. Uh, but they, And then also uh, these uh, drills, which they've said will start soon. So I think we will see some of that, uh, but also economic. Uh, the thing about some of these military uh, drills is these could disrupt the uh, Taiwan airspace. And Taiwan today complained about that, saying they wouldn't be able to have commercial flights uh, and operate the same kind of way. Also, shipping. Shipping could be disrupted. And uh, China made some uh, announcements today already about how uh, they would uh, not send some products to Taiwan. Uh, Also, as you note, tariffs. And it could become uh, economically uh, punitive uh, in some categories of goods. So that could be a real way to try to punish 
Turkish Taiwan. So I think we will see this uh, more over time and perhaps a, uh, a variety of strategies being used to try to squeeze Taiwan. Interesting. Okay. Lots of complicated dynamics to continue to watch play out over years. Uh, Jody Schneider, our Bloomberg political director. Thank you. All right. Coming up, more companies moving out of San Francisco, including one of the most prominent venture capital firms in tech. That story next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One of Silicon Valley's most prominent venture capital firms has announced the location of its new headquarters in the cloud. Andreessen Horowitz is the latest in a mass exodus around the Bay Area since the pandemic. But as companies relocate, Silicon Valley still remains the top draw for venture capital dollars. San Francisco attracted $52 billion in VC funding in the first half of the year, more than one-third of the total. That, according to PitchBook, Bloomberg's Lizette Chapman covers venture capital and startups for us. She's with me here now. So it's a pretty big deal that Andreessen Horowitz is moving its headquarters, if you will, to the cloud, opening these offices in Miami and other parts of the country, right? It's a major deal. This is um, a watershed moment uh, for Silicon Valley. Andreessen Horowitz, for people that aren't as familiar with it, it's one of the largest um, you know, VCs with the most under management. You know, they've backed household names, including Airbnb, Roblox, Lyft, as well as Anderol and Coinbase and others. And they employ more than, than most other VC firms. So for them saying, hey, Silicon, you no longer need, we no longer need to be in Silicon Valley. Green lights, um, that practice for founders who are already finding that working remotely works really well. So is this the start of a trend? Well, I would say that it's a continuation of a trend that actually began before the pandemic pandemic. Um, and it, this simply accelerates it. For example, if you look globally, um, you know, how venture capital was distributed, um, the U.S. got 84% of the total venture capital back in 2004. In 2021, the U.S. only got 49%. Silicon Valley um, 
its share of that continues to go down um, over time, and, and this is accelerating that. And the reason why is because there are so many new places to get funding. It's not just Sand Hill Road anymore. So is your expectation that Silicon Valley will still maintain some sort of dominance, but that there will be a lot of mini Silicon Valleys across the United States and really around the world? Right. Um, I think that's a pretty fair bet. Um, I think that, uh, you know, based on some of the talent here, I don't think it's, um, you know, likely for, a, you know, uh, you know, a massive exodus of people to suddenly say, no, we're going to rip, we're going to sell all of our homes, rip our, rips our kids out of schools and all of that. But, um, you know, there's, there's definitely competition from other hubs with lower cost of living, lower taxes, and, um, you know, equally uh, equal access to cash and talent. And some of them are pretty loud. I'm thinking about Miami. Miami's very loud. <laughs> LA is... <laughs> <laughs> and LA is very loud um, as well, as well as a number of other markets that have been um, increasingly gaining steam, like including, you know, Salt Lake City, Atlanta. Um, you know, you look at some of these other markets that were overlooked by venture right. capitalists who didn't want to get uh, on a plane or arrange the travel to go and, and do a seed deal and do the work with the very early stage companies when they really need that one-on-one. -on -one. They weren't willing to do that. So in a way, remote work makes venture capital more accessible to a larger number of founders that maybe were historically overlooked. All right. Fascinating. We'll certainly continue to follow this trend. Lizette Chapman, always good to have you back on the show. By the way, Bloomberg LP, which owns Bloomberg News, has invested in Andreessen Horowitz. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Many fintech stocks have gotten clobbered in the first half of the year, lagging the S&P 500 with growth slowed by COVID. Add to that rising interest rates, pressuring payment stocks and fears over a U.S. recession. It all raises the question of which payment stocks are best positioned to weather the downturn. Our Ed Ludlow back with us. Ed, what do you think? Yeah, well, so far, kind of case in point, right? Look at the numbers up 28%, biggest jump in the stock since January 2021, fourth straight day of gains, a really strong top line growth, adjusted net revenues up 50% year on year, eighth consecutive quarter of positive EBITDA. Bring up the numbers, Mr. Director, and let's look at what the street was really paying attention to, which was this strong guidance for the rest of the year, showing growth for the second half of this year despite changing market and economic conditions, market volatility. Really interesting move into new products as well. Deposits for SoFi Bank up 125% quarter on quarter, relatively new product. Personal loans also up. So they seem to be doing well. They seem to be consistent is what CEO Antinoto had to say during the earnings call. Let's compare year-to-date versus Robinhood as an example. Had a lot of news out of them this week. They actually would be kind of lagging behind Robinhood, but big jump in the stock today. And investors seem to think that SoFi is one stock that has some momentum in. I'd love them. Thank you. I want to stick with SoFi now and bring in CEO Anthony Noe himself. Anthony, great to have you back with us. So look, strong earnings. You're bucking the trend here. How do you explain this big uptick in deposits? Sure. Thank you for having me, Emily. Uh, the big uptick in deposits reflects the fact that for the first time uh, this quarter, we had our uh, national bank open. And having a bank license allows us to actually offer the consumer an interest rate on checking or savings that we determine as opposed to a bank sponsor determining it. And we've taken an approach where we really want to be the primary relationship with our members. We want them to be with us for all the major financial decisions they make in their lives and all the days in between. In order to be 
that primary relationship, we really need to be the place they do their direct deposit. So we're offering them 1.8% interest um, if they do direct deposit with us. And that's on checking, no minimum balance, no restricted on spending. They could spend when they want, they just have to do direct deposit with us. And that's allowing us to use those deposits uh, to fund their loans at a much lower cost. And so the two businesses are really synergistic. A higher interest rate in checking gives us more deposits at a lower cost, so we can lend more to more people and it drives a great virtuous circle. Now, I know you're expecting strong growth in the second half, but, you know, you've got a recession looming. We've got all these dire warnings from policymakers, from other CEOs. What are you preparing for? Sure. Well, we've we've been preparing for a war since March of 2020. When the global pandemic hit, um, the president of the United States uh, told federal student loan borrowers they didn't have to continue to make uh, payments on those federal student loans as part of the CARES Act. And that was incredibly important for our country. Well, that had a negative impact on our student loan refinancing business. If you're not paying your student loans, there's no motivation to refinance into a lower rate. So that business went from generating about $2.1 billion in originations um, two and a half years ago in, in Q1 of 2020 to only 400 million this quarter. Well, the reason we've been able to drive record revenue growth this quarter and the prior three quarters is because we're a one-stop shop for the consumer's financial needs. So we have businesses that can operate and off co- overcome challenges in one area to another area. As an example, our technology platform business, we're building out the AWS FinTech through two companies, Galileo and Technosys. Galileo saw an acceleration in, in its revenue growth because of the greater need for people a lower cost and use new technology platforms. So we really benefit in different environments. And in this environment, we're seeing great trends in personal loans, checking and savings, invest, strong demand on credit card, and also strong demand for technology services. Now, you've got the student loan moratorium set to end at the end of this month, but it's unclear what the Biden administration is going to do, if it's going to extend that pause, you know, follow through on this idea of maybe canceling student debt altogether. What are you preparing for there? I mean, does the war continue? (laughs) Yes, it does. Um, Our outlook for the second half of 2022 assumes the student loan moratorium continues throughout the entire year uh, and also that the president does provide forgiveness at about $10,000 for individuals. Um, If that actually happens and it's definitive, we could see a little bit of benefit, but we're not counting on it. Um, We assume the moratorium will continue through the end of the year. But once the government makes it the definitive statement, then people can make real choices. Right now, they're doing nothing, and it's actually hurting them. They're not benefiting from refinancing before rates go higher, and they're expected to go higher, so they'll lose some of the savings. In addition to that, they're not sure how much is going to be forgiven or if it will be forgiven at all, so they're not sure if they should refinance at all. So once we have a decision, we'll be able to pivot off of that and go to market in a in a concerted way. But right now, we're anticipating no benefit of the moratorium ending before the end of the year. Meantime, you know, we still have a, a, what seems to be a deteriorating macro environment. Walmart just announced more layoffs today. Robinhood announced yesterday they're laying off 23% of their workforce. Robinhood is a competitor to SoFi in some respects. I was on this call with Vlad of the CEO, who said, you know, he anticipated market conditions, good market conditions would last longer than they've lasted. So that's on me. He used those words. What's your own approach to hiring and other costs? I mean... You know, is there any chances coming for you? 
Well, we've been belt tightening since March of 2020 when that largest business and our most profitable business got cut by 75%. And so we've been pretty prudent about how we're allocating our capital and what we're investing in. We've delivered eight consecutive quarters and three quarters in a row of record revenue. And we had gap profitability uh, in our bank for the first time this quarter. And that's because of a prudent relationship between how much we invest, what risk we're willing to take, and also dropping into the bottom line. So we endeavor to drop about 30% of incremental revenue to profits and reinvest 70%. That keeps us disciplined and on cost on the cost side of the equation and not build up a fixed expense that we can't cover with incremental revenue. Anthony Noto, CEO of SoFi. Always good to have you here, Anthony. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. All right, coming up, Michael Saylor stepping down as CEO of MicroStrategy, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end of the Bitcoin era. We're going to hear directly from him about that and much more coming up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. MicroStrategy is changing up its leadership. Michael Saylor, who co-founded the company in 1989, is giving up his CEO title, saying he will increase his advocacy efforts for holding Bitcoin. Shares of MicroStrategy climbed as much as 17% after this announcement. Saylor will continue to serve as executive chair. MicroStrategy president Feng Luo will take on that CEO role on August 8th. Joining me to talk about all this and more is Michael Saylor himself. Michael, great to have you with us. So talk to us about what drove this decision to move on from that CEO spot. Is it the end of the Bitcoin era for MicroStrategy? No, no, it's the beginning of the Bitcoin era. Um, We got into Bitcoin about two years ago, and it's been a story of great success. The stock is up 123%. We outperformed Bitcoin. We did 3x as well as any other enterprise software company, about 3x as well as any other big tech company. So the shareholder returns have have been better than any competitive uh, stock or any competitive asset class. And most importantly, our balance sheet has swelled. We've increased our enterprise value by more than 730%, in essence, from $600 million to $5.5 billion over that 24-month time frame. 
So now we've got to the, to the next point in our development where we've decided we wanted to have a full-time world-class CFO. And we also uh, wanted uh, to bring one more person to the management team. So Andrew Kang joined us in May as CFO. Fong Lee had been the president and CFO of the company. And when Andrew joined, that uh, opened up the door for us to make Fong the president and CEO and for me to move to the role of executive chairman of the company. Now, some people have written in the news that somehow this is related to uh, our quarterly result or this large impairment charge we took in, in Q2. It's totally unrelated. The fact is, I've been working with Fong on CEO succession for about four years now, and it's always been part of the plan. We finally uh, got to the point where we had Andrew, our new CFO, on board, and we could actually make the change, and Fong could be CEO. So. I think that the market's responding to the fact that now instead of two executives, uh, Sailor and Fong Lee, we have three executives, and um, it allows me to do what I like to do, which is uh, Bitcoin advocacy, uh, Bitcoin acquisition. I'll continue to provide oversight for Bitcoin acquisition as the chair of the investments committee of the board. I'll stay okay. as the chair of the board. And it means Fong, who has been the president and the chief operating executive, he'll just be running the day-to-day -day business. And Andrew, who's world-class CFO, will be here to help us pursue all of our financial strategies. Okay, so just for the record then, to those who are speculating that you were pushed out of this role, is there any truth to that? No. <laughs> I'm. First of all, it's my idea, Emily. And second of all, yeah, some people say it's their idea. I'm the controlling shareholder of the company. I have the majority of the voting stock. And so I've been planning uh, to, to place Fong as the CEO since we made him chief operating officer. That was like 2018. And we made him president uh, in 2020. And at that point, he was running sales marketing technology services pretty much everything, and he was the CFO. And so that was his two years to get comfortable in that role. And, um, and we couldn't elevate him to CEO until we had another CFO. It's, it's, you know, it's totally inappropriate to have a CEO and CFO as one person in a publicly traded company. So the catalyst for this is um, when could I find a CFO and when would, it, when would Fong have had the time to season in the role? And both of those things, uh, they, the plan predates my infatuation with Bitcoin, Emily. It goes back that far, many years. All right. Still, MicroStrategy lost a billion dollars due to your Bitcoin holdings. It's underperforming, you know, the biggest tech companies that are also underperforming. How do you square that? You know, how much is too much for you or when will it ever be too much? Okay, well, first of all, it's a non-cash, indefinite, intangible loss. Um, the number that matters to our shareholders is 129,699. That's the number of Bitcoin we hold on our balance sheet. And as I've just laid out, over a two-year period, our, our strategy outperformed the NASDAQ by a factor of 10. So we are volatile in the near term, more volatile than a lot of things, but volatility is the price you pay for performance. We could have chosen a more conventional path in August of 2020, and just given $500 million back to the shareholders and operated an enterprise software company that would have been worth about $60 a share. But there's no way we could have achieved superior shareholder returns if we weren't willing to take a risk and embrace that volatility. 
So the right. result, as you can see it, is the stock is above $300 a share. It gyrates. We have more volatility in one hour, Emily, than we had in 12 weeks before. But I embrace the volatility because the alternative would be we're dead money and no one cares about us. Now, even Tesla sold 75% of its crypto holdings. And on that day that Tesla announced it, you tweeted, if you sell 75% of your Bitcoin, you only have 25% of your Bitcoin left. Is Elon Musk wrong? Such a sad day for Tesla. It's, you know, we all regret having, having uh, chosen great assets. All of my investment mistakes in my entire career where I bought a good thing and then I sold it too soon. And uh, there's never going to be more than 21 million Bitcoin. In 100 years from now, there'll be no more than 21 million Bitcoin. So I think that it's a buy and hold strategy. I think that, uh, you know, Tesla has, has many other uh, issues that I am not privy to. So it's not my place to criticize them. But I do think that uh, acquiring and holding high quality property forever is a good investment strategy. And Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the highest quality property in the world. Now, a housekeeping question. You filed with the SEC to issue 450,000 shares as part of an employee benefit plan. Is that going to the new CEO, to you, to other employees? No, um, the, there will be a stock option grant uh, to the new CEO. It's uh, 60,000 shares. Um, but uh, the rest goes uh, to the employees, not to me. Um, I haven't had any stock option grants since 2013, and I work for a dollar a year. So uh, we have uh, made a uh, concerted effort to make sure that nearly all of our employees have either stock options or restricted stock units. And that way they share in, in our Bitcoin strategy success as well as our enterprise business intelligence strategy success. And that's been a highly successful motivational program. It's cut our attrition in half and been great for morale. So, look, I know Bitcoin supporters have been arguing for a decade that, uh, you know, decentralized cryptocurrency would dethrone the U.S. dollar. It hasn't happened yet. Will that happen? No, I, I don't think it'll happen. But what I do think is there's incredible consensus that the entire world wants a digital dollar, like a stable coin, like Circle or Tether. And, um, and they want it because their currencies are collapsing and 8 billion people would like to have dollars on their Android phone. And I also think there's a consensus that a digital commodity like Bitcoin is a really important asset to stand alongside things like gold or oil or land. And there's incredible demand for that sort of digital property in the world. And so I think Bitcoin will... Uh, Bitcoin is going to grow as an asset class, as it's legitimized and embraced as an asset class. I think it'll coexist alongside other assets. And I think that there will always be fiat currencies from strong, uh, well-run nation states. But Emily, it is true that in places like Sri Lanka and Venezuela and Nigeria, their currencies are collapsing. And those citizens are going to use the dollar as a medium of exchange for the near term. And if you want a long-term store of value, and I'm saying looking out four years or longer, you want property. And, and Bitcoin is, is, of course, that long-term digital property you want to hold as a store of value. All right. Michael Saylor. Always good to have you, Michael. Thank you.
On to the latest in the Twitter Musk saga. Twitter subpoenaed records from equity investors and sought information on investors like Mark Andreessen and Ken Griffin and a host of other venture capital figures. You may have seen them tweeting about it. This over Elon Musk's financing of the $44 billion buyout. We should note that Bloomberg LP, which owns Bloomberg News, has invested in Andreessen Horowitz. And here to break it all down for us is Jeff Feely, our reporter who covers the courts of Delaware and who's been very busy over the last few weeks. So look, are these moves pretty common as part of discovery, Jeff? It's standard operating procedure for both sides in these lawsuits to issue a bunch of subpoenas to banks, equity investors, lawyers, so they can gather the information they need to build their cases. So uh, we've actually spoken to some of these friends of Elon Musk who've been subpoenaed. One of them is David Sachs, who's actually come on our show a couple of times in the last few months to talk about the, the potential for this deal to happen. Take a listen to what he had to say. When you put bots on Twitter and pretend to be someone you're not, when you pretend, when you basically violate the authenticity requirement, you are basically perpetrating a kind of fraud. That is not free speech, that's fake speech. It is perfectly fair game under any kind of free speech policy to take down those kinds of bots. And I fully expect that Elon will be far more effective at doing that than the current management of Twitter because they've been unable to do that. So, you know, obviously we don't know what kind of discussions they've had behind the scenes, if, if any at all, but what might the courts be hoping to get from someone like a David Sachs? Well, this, this issue of the bots is really where the rubber is going to meet the road. Uh, as my understanding, it, it's very difficult to get very specific numbers on these things because everybody has to deal with them. It's not just Twitter. Uh, it's a common problem in the tech industry when you're dealing with this kind of stuff. So it's not going to be an easy argument for Mr. Musk to win on. And uh, the Twitter folks, of course, say that it's all sort of a pretext ginned up so to, to provide a basis for him to walk away. Judge McCormick is going to be the ultimate decider of all of it. Okay. What's next here? Well, we're still in the discovery phase, so we're going to still have a blizzard of subpoenas. Next, we'll start with notice of depositions, and there'll be, you know, probably hundreds of depositions in this case. Bankers, Mr. Musk, the Twitter folks, you know, everybody's going to have to sit down and say their piece. And then we're going to go to trial in October, and it should be quite a show. A show indeed. We will be following this blizzard of subpoenas, and I know you will continue to be very busy through October. Jeff Feely, thank you for weighing in. Appreciate it. Okay, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Coming up later this week, Thursday, we've got Steve Wesley from the Wesley Group. We're going to be covering Tesla's annual meeting. Of course, he was a, a former director on Tesla's board. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.